dynasties rise and dynasties fall. The mighty Almoravid dynasty, which had unified everything from Ghana to the north of Spain and temporarily stopped the onslaught of the Christian conquest from the north, would only last a little over a century before it would be replaced by yet another Berber empire, this one even more powerful. And while the Almoravids had come to unify the faith, to purge it of elements that they felt were foreign, they would fall not to those who opposed their harsh measures, but to those who felt they hadn't gone far enough. Today we're going to look at the second of the great Berber dynasties, that is the Almohads. And that is our subject today on the Golden Age of Islam. So please stay tuned. to have you here and before we begin I want to thank you all for the kind comments the kind likes uh, all the new followers that we have all the nice comments on Facebook thank you very much Uh, those really help us to stay in business and to keep this show on the air without cost without subscription and without advertisements so thank you very much keep them coming I know right now with the virus going on We need some things to keep us busy, so I hope that this program helps. Well, today we're going to pick up where we left off in the last episode, and that is talking about the great Berber empires of uh, the western part of North Africa, uh, what is largely Morocco today. We talked last time about the El Maravid Empire, and as strong as it sounded, They had managed to overcome the division of the squabbling Taifa kingdoms and to hold off the Christian conquest from the north. And they managed to do this for quite a while and were quite strong, but they would last only about a century, a little more than a century to give them their credit. And they would be replaced by another Berber tribal dynasty from the south of Morocco. The Almoravids had imposed a strict version of Islamic law, their version of it, what they thought uh, was the real thing, and cracked down on what they believed to be deviations throughout the empire, which is what they saw as something important for fighting against the Christian attacks was to strengthen uh, the fervor of the Islamic people. And so it's surprising that their downfall did not come from any of those that they had opposed on their way to the top. It didn't come from the Spanish kingdoms. Uh, It didn't come from those who felt they were too strict or the leftovers of the old Umayyad Caliphate. No, it came from another Berber dynasty who was trying to do essentially the same thing, that is, unite the faith, purify it, and fight the enemies, but who felt that the Almoravids had gotten a bit soft and needed to be replaced. Now when you hear that story, just for a moment, it may spark something in your mind. This may sound very familiar, 
Uh, something about a nomadic group coming out from the desert, taking over a large empire, initially being very strict and very zealous, but sort of losing their edge, being replaced by another nomadic group. Well, this sounds exactly like uh, Ibn Khaldun's uh, theory of history that we talked about, about nomadic tribes conquering city folks and then being conquered by other nomads later on. Well, this is no surprise because Ibn Khaldun was from this area. Now, of course, he would be about three centuries later. Um, but he based a lot of his theory on these specific groups here, the Almoravids and how they took over and how they were taken over by the Almohads. So you may or may not completely agree with Ibn Khaldun's theory. Uh, a lot of people don't. But one thing we can say for sure is the cycle we're going to talk about today, uh, the changes that we're going to talk about in today's episode, absolutely follow the pattern of Ibn Khaldun's theory because this is what he based the theory on. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the Al-Mawahids. Now, if the names get confusing, you are certainly forgiven for that. Uh, many historians lump these two empires together. In fact, it's very common to see them talk about the period of the Almoravids slash Almohads, treated as one period. And, and we'll see why. I mean, there are differences between them, uh, but they have a lot of similarities. In fact, one of the most recent books to come out on this subject, and it's one which we're using as a source for a lot of this information today, uh, written by the eminent historian Amira Benison at Cambridge University, uh, does just that. It's about these two empires. And in fact, rather than break it down chronologically, she breaks it down by subject, talking about the politics of both empires, talking about the society of both empires. So there are a lot of similarities, but they are different to certain degrees. And it's the ways that they are different says a lot about the trends at the time. And that's what we want to concentrate on today. Okay, so to discuss uh, the Al-Mawahids, which is our subject today, we have to start by talking about the founder of this dynasty. And this is the legendary Ibn Tumart. And I say legendary, not just because he was great, but because so much of what has been written about him was written by his devoted followers that, you know, separating the truth from fiction is very difficult here. And so a lot of what we're going to discuss today probably falls somewhere in between those two things. And we really don't have any good means of separating out the truth from the fiction. Okay, So... We're going to have to go with that. And as I said, even Ibn Khaldun, who we think of as a very reliable source for history and who talks a lot about them, he, he talks about Ibn Tumart, who is essentially the exemplar of the nomad leader. When he's talking about the zealous nomad leader who has a devoted following, uh, I mean, he's really patenting it after this guy. Um, even then, uh, Ibn Khaldun gives a lot of information about Ibn Tumart, but a lot of what he gives is probably legendary also because he's using the sources that were available to him. Now, hopefully as we go through today's episode, uh, you'll understand why. When you see what kind of uh, a following Ibn Tumart had and what sort of leadership style he had, 
you can see why there would be a lot of legendary information circulating around him. So we're not even sure when he was born, but we do know he came from the Masmuda Berber tribes, which is a collection of Berber tribes in the Sus Valley in Morocco, which is south of where the Almoravids had their capital at Marrakesh, which is already in the south of Morocco. So we're talking very south, very close to um, what is Mauritania today. Uh, and the place he was born doesn't doesn't exist anymore, so we don't know exactly what, what area uh, he was at. Even from his early days, Ibn Tumert was known to be an extremely pious young man, and his father was probably a Sufi leader, uh, and Sufis, of course, were of great importance, still of great importance uh, among the nomadic tribes, among the Berbers, and so this is probably how he got his start. Uh, but we do know, even though he was from this area in southern Morocco in the desert, uh, he was sent to Cordoba in Spain, which, of course, Cordoba was, I mean, once the greatest city in Europe, uh, was still the major center of learning in El Andalus in Muslim Spain. So this is a pretty big thing. So this would be like talking about somebody coming from the middle of the desert and going to, uh, say, Oxford or you know, Cambridge. After that, he went to Baghdad. So we're talking, you know, very mobile person. Went from Spain to Baghdad, where he studied under the famous El Ghazali, whom we have discussed in a, he had his own episode many months ago, and he's popped up many times also. Now, th this is important because number one, it gives him some a lot of street cred. He's studying under you know the most eminent scholar of his day, the big name. But there's also an important connection here. And this is that the Almoravids, who were the dynasty at the time, they supposedly adhered to Al-Ghazali's teaching. At least they said so. They had taken him as a model. But when Ibn Tumar got to Baghdad, there were a lot of reports going around about how the Almoravids were deviating from Al-Ghazali's teaching or not applying his teaching. Uh, and, of course, we have to look at the distances that are involved here. So he's in the middle of Iraq, and reports are coming in from Morocco and Spain. And, of course, I mean, there is no mass communications. There's no electronics. I mean, things are coming on horseback or camel or, you know, by ship. And so these reports are coming over a great distance. But the word is getting to Al-Ghazali that the Almoravids over there who have now this big empire, right? it's been probably the second biggest empire uh, in Islam at the time, are deviating from what they say are Al-Ghazali's teachings. So in comes Ibn Tumart, who is this guy who has come from their territory. Um, and so, well, let's ask him. I mean, you were just there. Now, he's already got a bone to pick with him because we said Ibn Tumart is very, very strict. He believes in a very Spartan uh, version of Islamic law. And so what he sees going on in the Almoravid empire, he doesn't like. It's going to lead him to eventually overthrow that empire. But at this point, he's just a student. So when people start to ask him, hey, what is, what's it really like there? 
I mean, of course, he's going to give the worst possible reports going. So he does a lot to perpetuate this idea. So, you know, back in the, the great really spiritual intellectual capital of the Muslim world of Baghdad, which in reality has fallen uh, a lot from its power, he's perpetuating the idea that the Almoravids are these deviants. So at some point, uh, Al-Ghazali himself supposedly commissions Ibn Tumut to go back and straighten these guys out. Now, exactly how formal and serious a commission that was, uh, we don't know. Uh, maybe it was just an offhand comment where Al-Ghazali said, you know, somebody really needs to straighten these people out. And Ibn Tumut was like, I'll do it. And he, you know, ran off wanting to do this, which you know, sounds a lot like him. Um, but the way it works out in history, the fact that Ibn Tumurt is the one who's going to end up overthrowing the Almoravids, this idea that he was commissioned to do this by the great Al-Ghazali himself is going to get blown up into a big thing. So whether he ever really was commissioned to do this or not, it's going to do a lot. Uh, the, the legend, the story is going to do a lot to strengthen the legitimacy of his claim when he takes over. Okay, so anyway, he's got this reputation as a hardliner, as a corrector, uh, and, and it's growing. And so along with that, as his, as his reputation for being very strict grows, the legends of his origin are going to grow also. So like I said, in reality, we don't know much uh, of anything about his actual origins but like we talked about last week, um, there's a whole big business of generating origin stories and lineages uh, for people, right? They didn't have Ancestry.com or anything like that. So, you know, if, if you wanted to say that you were a, a great leader, you could come up with a lineage to show you had a you know, direct line to the prophet or something. So, I mean, last episode we talked about how the Almoravids had constructed a genealogy that they claimed proved that they were descendants of the original believers, the original monotheists from the Arabian Peninsula, which again is a sort of a constructed idea that may or may not have any truth behind it, doesn't have a lot of proof. Um, but this was a part of their legitimacy of saying, yes, you know, we are Berbers over here, you know, way over in North Africa, and yes, our tribes just recently got converted to Islam, but you know what? We are actually descendants of the original monotheists, um, the ones that Abraham left here, you know, long ago, and see how great that works out. Um, so anyway, Ibn Tumur, he is going to do the same thing. So he's going to claim to have been a direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, and to be a, specifically a descendant of the Prophet's grandson, Hassan, who migrated to Morocco in the 700s. Um, and this is not the Imam Hassan. This is uh, another person. Now, again, that story may or may not be true. Even Ibn Khaldun confirms it, but most scholars today doubt it. But anyway, it's, it's part of his rep. Uh, and it, it's going to get even bigger. He's going to have a lot of things to go and build up this reputation that he has as he's the guy come to straighten everything out.
Okay, well, Ibn Tumert is going around making friends everywhere he goes. So he goes to Cairo, but he gets kicked out of the city for trying to correct the moral behavior of pretty much everybody he meets. He becomes such a public nuisance that they have him expelled from the city. So therefore, he takes a boat back to Morocco, uh, but is thrown overboard. He's thrown off the boat for doing the same thing, for annoying everyone. Uh, for example, he dumped out all their wine that they were carrying, and th this is pretty much typical for him. And so the story that circulates, again, possibly legend, is that they threw him in the water, uh, and then half a day later they found him still floating in the water. Uh, and, you know, this was not a time when a lot of people could swim, and they assumed that this was a blessing, that God was protecting him and took this as a sign and took him back on the ship. Now, whether that actually happened or not, you know, is debatable. But he does make his way uh, back originally to what is uh, Tunisia, then Algeria, and then back to Morocco. So he's, you know, he's upsetting a lot of people, but um, he's still surviving. Okay, so what, you know, what is his uh, ideology? What is his message that he's spreading that is upsetting um, people? Well, Ibn Tumart's focus was on the oneness of God, or the Tawheed. Now, that's not unusual, of course, and probably sounds like you've heard that many, many times, and it is. I mean, this is pretty much going to be the message of any so-called fundamentalist or hardliner or reformer. That's pretty much what they're all going to call for, because I mean, the unity of God is the basic message of Islam. This is essentially why we have Islam. I mean, it came about uh, really as a reaction to all the stuff going on in Christianity, which was deviating from that. And we, of course, we talked about that in the in the very first episodes of this of this series. And so, I mean, the whole message of Islam is the unity of God, and then secondly, the unity of God's community. And so the idea of oneness is very, very important. So every, every reformer who comes along is going to be calling for a return to oneness. The difference, of course, is how they interpret that. Okay, what do they see as the violations of um, deviating from the oneness of God? Uh, so... Ibn Tumart is going to go after some really obvious things that were going on, like the selling of wine and pork in the markets, which the Almoravids had allowed to happen, you know, showing that they're, they're deviating um, from the law, they're mixing it. Uh, so that, that kind of stuff is obvious. But on a deeper level, on sort of the theological level, and what he's going to go after here is the Almoravid support for the Maliki school of law. Now, if this gets a bit confusing, you are certainly excused because it is a bit convoluted. And so, just to recap, uh, Sunni Islam, as we've said, has four main schools of law or madhabs. And because Islam is much more focused on law than on theology, you know, in comparison to say like Christianity for a lot of reasons, but particularly because Islam has always been, or up to this point, has always been a state. It's always been a government. It's never been separate from the religion. So governing the community has always been one of the essential uh, facets of Islam. 
So Islamic law is absolutely a, a critical part of Islam. Now, this is a more useful dimension to talk about than branches of Islam or denominations of Islam. You know, in Christianity, we talk about those, the, the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Episcopalians and so forth. That doesn't really apply in Islam. In Islam, it's much more useful to talk about the school of law that people follow. And by school, I'm using school in the generic sense. I'm not talking about Harvard Law School or... Uh, Trump University online or anything like that. Now, as you said, in um, Sunni Islam, there are four major schools of law. Now, pretty much, and I, and I will say this, in, quote, mainstream Islam, if you were to poll, you know, Sunnis today, among 90 plus percent of them, all four schools are legitimate. Okay, so they have different rulings on certain things, different ways they come up with answers to certain questions. Is this legitimate? Is this not? You know, how much, how long does one have to wait after someone dies before they can get remarried and stuff? So they have differences on these points of interpretation, but they generally consider um, all the schools to be legitimate. And so if you go to a major Islamic school today, you generally will find all four of them being taught. In fact, if you go to some of the old medieval uh, schools, they're laid out in four branches. You'll have a central courtyard and four wings, and the four wings represent the four branches, uh, not the four branches, but the four schools of Islamic law. Now, I say, quote, traditionally, they are all accepted. I say in the mainstream, all four schools are accepted. Now, there will be those who come along and say, no, the points on which we differ are too important, and so therefore I don't accept you. You have to be from my school. And understand that this is a, a very minority saying this, and even at the time we're talking about, about a thousand years ago, it was still a minority then. But I think you've heard enough about Ibn Tumart in this show so far to know where he's going to be on this. So Ibn Tumart is a follower of the so-called Zahriya school, or what we call a Zahrite. Um, and in the English transliteration, this is usually spelled with a Z, so if you look in a book, you'll see it written as Zahari, uh, but that's their way of trying to spell that letter, Zaharite. Uh, um, now, today, most people would say that this school does not exist. Uh, some people would say it has been absorbed into the other schools, that it's basically been absorbed into Hanbali. Um, but at the time, at the time of Ibn Tumart, it was big enough and popular enough that uh, a lot of people considered it a separate school from the big four. Uh, and it was particularly popular in Al-Andalus, and that, of course, is where he studied. Okay, so uh, what difference does it make that he's a Zahirite? Well, in Arabic, the word Zahir means appearance. And this refers to the outward, literal meaning of the Qur'an and the Hadith. Okay, so we know that the Qur'an does not address everything we need for law directly. In fact, there are very few specific laws and commands in the Qur'an. 
the vast majority of Islamic law is not coming from the Quran. It's coming from other methods. So scholars have to use other methods, right, to determine uh, rulings on certain things because you have to rule in the real world when things aren't mentioned. Okay, so among these are things like qiyas, which means analogy, and ijtihad, which means independent reasoning. This is a huge, huge controversial uh, thing. Uh, even today, whenever there is talk about either reform or fundamentalism in Islam, ijtihad is always the biggie uh, because it means independent reasoning. So what do we mean by these? So an example of an analogy would be to take something that the Quran does not mention. Uh, like it doesn't mention, say, opium directly, or drugs like cocaine or, or heroin directly. But it does mention alcohol. Well, you make an analogy based on that, and you say, well, alcohol is forbidden because it makes you drunk and it makes you act crazy. So opium and cocaine and these other drugs, they should be forbidden too. So that's analogy. Ijtihad is more like common sense reasoning based on a jurist understanding of the spirit of the law. You've studied the Quran and the Hadith and Islamic law for years and years. You have a pretty good idea what the intent and the spirit of these laws work. So when some new issue comes along, like, okay, today it would be something like facial recognition software used by the government. Of course, this is not mentioned in any Quran or Hadith, but you apply the spirit of what you know and you say, well, what would, they, what would they say about this? Okay, so the schools of law essentially differ on which methods you use and in what priority. And in, in reality, if you were to look at them on specific issues, we're not talking about huge differences in... Um, what they actually rule on. So something like if someone's spouse disappears, right? So you're married and your husband goes off into the desert and is never heard from again. At what point do we declare that person presumed dead? Right? I mean, they could have been dead on the first day. They might still be alive for years and years. So the different schools of law are going to have different interpretations of what it's three years, it's seven years, whatever it is. Well, what, they base that on certain things that they have, but it's which, which one of these do you use and which order to come up with that answer. Okay, so having said that, you can guess that the Dhahari school is going to be big on the literal meaning of the Quran. So the founder of the school, he had two main points that he made. He said, number one, if God wanted something to be obvious, he would have said it outright. Okay, If God wanted you to know what to rule about opium, he would have mentioned opium. And God knows everything. He knows the future. Um, so, you know, something that didn't exist at the time the Quran was revealed. Doesn't matter if God had wanted it mentioned, he would have mentioned it. Therefore, if it isn't in the book, God doesn't want you guessing. Which leads to the second point, you know, trying to assume what God wants. You know, quote, what, what would Allah do is blasphemous. You say, well, you know, God didn't say anything about this particular issue. It's not mentioned in the Quran, 
but we know he said this, this, and this, and based on the spirit of this, we think this would be God's intent. Well, how dare you say what God's intent was? Okay, so um, that's, that's the point they take. Well, you can see what the problem is here, and it's really an essential difference between being in power and having to run things and being on the outside and being a critic. And, and we know this is always, it's always easier to be a critic when you don't actually have to run things. So Ibn Tumart, who is a devout Zahiri, he's going to have major issues with the Almoravids because they have set up a system. You know, they've got courts and colleges and schools are, are ruling and making opinions on all these real things because they have to run a real empire. Not only do they have to run a real empire, they have to run a multicultural empire, an empire that has lots of contact and trade with Christians, with Jews, and so forth. Um, they're absorbing all these other kingdoms into their empire. So they're going to have to make a, a lot of compromises and a lot of you know, sort of tolerating things, saying, well, this isn't specifically mentioned, so I guess it's okay. Well, if you're coming from a school that says, if it's not specifically stated in the Quran and the Hadith, and we are not supposed to judge on it, well, you're going to have issues with a lot of things they're doing. And so he does, and he sees the government as being the problem here. Now, I mean, this is kind of like being a libertarian or an anarchist. It's real easy to criticize the existing government. I mean, if you had to actually run things, it would be a lot different. And I think it's important to point this out because we hear a lot in history. And even today, we, we hear people talking about, you know, a strict application of the Sharia or a literal application of the Quran. As if there is one, you know, like there is you know, one book out there that has all the Sharia and this is exactly how it's supposed to work. And, you know, real people, real governments are just deviating from it. You know, the fact is that the Quran doesn't uh, doesn't specify a lot of things. And we know there's no agreement on the Hadith, the largest Hadith collections out there, except about two percent as being legit. So any actual society is going to have to make these sort of judgment calls, and a lot of things are going to be based on the opinion of the jurist, whether you say it is or not. And the same thing is going to happen when, when the Al-Mu'ahids take over. You know, they're going to end up making rulings based on their own opinion, but that's not what they're going to say they're doing. Okay, so I, I think... Um, it's, it's important to realize that because we hear this thing about, you know, strict adherence to the Sharia as if there is one version of it. Uh, it's kind of like, it reminds me of, you know, some of the strict constitutionalists in this country. Now, I hope I'm not going to alienate part of the listening audience here. Probably not. Uh, but, I mean, there, there are those who call upon politicians today to throw away all the laws and rule strictly on the Constitution. Uh, at one rally, a, a man pulled out a copy of the Constitution and he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have nothing but this. Now, of course, the Constitution is the basis of all our laws in America, but you need a lot more details, right? Nowhere in the Constitution does it say, I can't drive my car 100 miles an hour through your front lawn, right? I mean, this is 
the point. It's the basis of the laws, but you have to make specific laws. So that's um, pretty similar to what Ibn Tumur is doing here today. We're just going to rule strictly based on the Quran. Well, anyone who, who has read it knows that the, there just isn't enough to run the entire society. You're going to have to make judgment calls, and that's what they do. Okay. Well, Ibn Tumut continued to make friends all along as he went along. Uh, after his incident on the ship, uh, he, he makes it to Algeria. He goes on to Tunisia and Morocco, uh, and he does pretty much the same thing in every place. He sets himself up outside of mosques and outside of markets and, you know, basically yelling at everybody uh, who goes by, telling them that they're doing things wrong. I mean, you sort of have an image of the person on the street corner with a bullhorn and a sign yelling at everybody. Uh, this is kind of what he was the equivalent of. I mean, certainly if you've been on a college campus, you've, you've met those. Uh, okay, so this is what he's going to do. And I, I think... I think we do have to admit that it says a lot about the toleration um, of the day. That a guy was, you know, going from city to city doing this, uh, and you know he got thrown out of a lot of places. But I mean, he didn't get killed, or he didn't. I mean, eventually he's going to get locked up. But he went for a while without doing that. So it says something about the the tolerance of the day. Okay, so of course he's got his favorite issues: wine, pork. Mixing of sexes in public, I mean, he's completely against that. But he's going to have another big issue against the Almoravids, and that is the, the so-called face veil, the litham, that we discussed in the previous episode, um, if you listen to that. And we know that the Almoravids, you know, because of them coming out of the desert, had this tradition of the men wearing what's called a veil, but if you look at it, it basically looks like you've wrapped a scarf around your mouth and nose. Um, you know, with the coronavirus, we see a lot of similar things today. But the point was, the men wore this, uh, women didn't. And in, in the uh, Sanhaja Berber tribes from which they came, this was a sign of masculinity to wear this, because it meant you were out riding through the desert. It was like wearing a cowboy hat or something. However, to others, and particularly Ibn Tumurt in this case, this was simple gender bending. Uh, this was men dressing like women. That's all he saw. Uh, okay, so there's a famous incident in which Ibn Tumurt makes his way all the way to Marrakesh. Uh, in truth, he's, he's been kicked out of you know every city all, all along the way. I mean, so he's really gone a, a long way. And he goes to Marrakesh, which is the of course, the capital of the Almoravid Empire, and he he's seeking the sultan. He wants to see the sultan. So he finds the sultan in a mosque, uh, surrounded by his entourage. He asks where the sultan is. Uh, someone points out, he says, that's him over there. And Ibn Tumurt famously replies, all I see is a bunch of women here. Okay, and he's referring to the sultan and his guys with their litham, whether you want to call them face veils or scarves, whatever you, whatever you call this. Now, these, I mean, this is the sultan in, in his entourage, guys who consider themselves pretty macho warriors. And so uh, that's obviously going to offend them. 
Now, these stories, however, depict the sultan as trying to reason with Ibn Tumurt and actually accepting some of his criticisms and admitting that there is room for improvement. But Ibn Tumurt won't cut him any slack. Uh, he says that the whole Almoravid Empire is corrupt, it needs to be destroyed, and so forth. Um, now, this is pretty bold, perhaps it's pretty foolhardy, uh, but it also turns out he succeeds, so we have to give him that. So, uh, against the advice of his companions, who wanted to have Ibn Tumurt locked up or killed, the sultan instead has him given 14 lashes with a stick and sent out of town. Now, had the sultan decided differently, perhaps the Almoravid dynasty might have continued for a few more centuries. Uh, but, you know, it's always hard to tell what great changes are going to come out of some small decisions like this. Anyway, all he does is um, basically upset Ibn Tumurt and make him even more convinced that he's got to destroy this evil empire, uh, which he's going to go back and work on. During his many stops from Algeria down to southern Morocco, uh, Ibn Tumurt has gathered a, a group of like-minded followers. And this group, I mean, it starts out very small, but it's going to include you know, all of the top uh, officials in the empire, basically his military chief, his successor, his biographer, and so forth. And, you know, this is one of those tight groups. You know, we, we think in China, we hear about the communist revolution, about the long march. And so it started with uh, Chairman Mao in this small group of close, close uh, friends, comrades that he had. And they marched for a thousand miles. And even later on, when they took over all of China, there would be the, you know, the um, fame of the long marchers, those who were in that group. So this is kind of like the, the core group, those who were there at the beginning uh, of this thing, the really hardcore ones. And so this group starts to call themselves El Mawahideen, which means the uniters. And this, of course, is coming from the Arabic root Wahid. Wahid means one. Muwahideen means the uniters. This refers specifically to the oneness of God. I mean, and this was how they were going to lead to a return to that. Um, the, so um, even more so than Muwahideen, the name means, um, you know, like the, the ones pushing for oneness, meaning the oneness of God. And so it's no wonder that they took a name like this because this is getting to the essence of Islam. Uh, and this, by the way, is what the same thing that the word Al-Maravid, Al-Marabatin, meant as well. Uh, but this name, like most Arabic words, it gets very badly transliterated. And so we end up with the word Al-Mohads coming from Al-Mawahid, Al-Mawahideen. Uh, this came from the Spanish Al-Mohades, uh, but in, in any case it doesn't sound a whole lot like the original. But anyway, that's where we get this word. So we will use that term because that's what you'll see in most books. Okay, so Ibn Tumur eventually wakes his way back to his hometown, which we don't know exactly where it is today, 
uh, but somewhere in the Sus Valley, south of Marrakesh, and he sets himself up in a cave. Now, if that sounds reminiscent of the Prophet Muhammad, it's absolutely deliberate. He wants it to sound that way. Uh, he gets a reputation for his extremely Spartan lifestyle. Uh, he's said to do miraculous healings and such. He, of course, is preaching for a turn to strict monotheism. And at some point, he claims to be the Mahdi, who we've mentioned before. This is, the Mahdi is the concept of the, the promised one who will return at at the end of time to set things right. Uh, and so it's, you know, linked, talked about as a messianic figure. It's not exactly um, uh, what it is, but it, it ends up attracting a lot of the same ideas of the second coming of Christ, where we have the coming of the Mahdi, and so forth. Now, if that sounds a little bit familiar, it definitely is. There are many, many many figures who made the claim to being the Mahdi at this time uh, throughout Islamic history, even today. Um, the, the Khalif of the Fatimid Empire is, is said to be the Mahdi, and um, his successors still to this day believe to be the Mahdi, and so forth. So, I mean, he is not the only one claiming to be this. But this was a particularly good time to do this, um, because the year 1106, which is about when this happened, is the 500th year of the beginning of Islam. Now, it's, it's not the 500th year of the Hijri calendar, which is based on the migration to Mecca, but it's the 500th year of the beginning of the Islamic revelation according to the lunar calendar. And we've seen how those major milestones generate these kind of hopes. I mean, they really shouldn't. I mean, unless the the scripture specifically said, hey, 500 years from now, this is going to happen, but people do. So the year 100 uh, certainly inspired these ideas. That was about the time we got the um, uh, the Abbasid revolution, and people thought that. Uh, the year 200 led a lot of people to think that that was going to be the time, and so forth. So he's coming about year 500, and so this helps him with his message, and his message is basically we need to overthrow these corrupt Almoravids. And so from this point on, once he's claimed to be the Mahdi, he starts really emphasizing the similarities of his life and the prophets. And his biographers do the same. So living in the cave is part of this. Uh, when he eventually leads the attack on Marrakesh, the capital of the Almoravids, it will be described as a parallel to the prophet's entry into Mecca and so forth. Um, at the same time, he is leading a major purge, several major purges of those he considers weak in loyalty or devotion. Now, a lot of people disagree with this, but at one point, one jurist challenges him on these purges and they have him crucified specifically for doubting the Mahdi. And so this shows that amongst the followers, I mean, he is considered to be basically infallible. I mean, he's now got this sort of power. Okay, so all that's good, uh, but, you know, we've seen a lot of those messianic figures come and go. How is it that he actually, you know, gets to build an army that is capable of winning? 
So there's a lot of disaffection amongst the Berber tribes of this area. And so there are six major tribes that will ally with Ibn Tumart against the Almoravids. They happen to be centered in the Atlas Mountains, which are east and south of Marrakesh. And the terrain is of significance here. Now, if you've been to Morocco, and you should, uh, you know it's a, it's a country of great geographic contrast. And that's one of the reasons it's a big tourist de destination. I mean, you have the Sahara Desert in the south, which is I mean, just like you see in the pictures. But you have rugged mountains in the east. At some points in the Atlas Mountains, there are actually ski resorts not down in the area where Ibn Tumert is, but it gives you an idea of how high these mountains are. Um, extremely high, extremely rugged, and that means a great place uh, for rebels to hide, especially mobile nomadic rebels. Uh, you know, they're going to be very hard to catch. They're going to be very hard to weed out of those mountains. And they've got the tribe supporting them, so um, this pretty much gives them a base. Okay, well, and this is the kind of uh, campaign they're going to lead, basically like guerrilla operations, you know, attack, raid, and when the Almoravid um, army comes, you run, you disperse. I mean, this, this has basically worked um, in so many different uh, settings. All right, so one of the big uh, areas in which they're going to be able to weaken the Almoravids is cutting the trade routes from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and the the Almoravids depend on this because, again, they've got this empire which, I mean, stretches from the Gold Coast of Africa all the way up to northern Spain, and they're trading things like gold in particular, which comes from down in the south. And those trade routes go through the Sahara Desert. And of course, there are very limited places you can run a trade route through the Sahara Desert. It's not like if you're you know, driving across America and one one road gets wiped out. I mean, you can go to another side road. Um, you know, you're going across the Sahara Desert, there are very few actual routes you can go and very few oases you can stop at. And so when the Almohads disrupt this, when they take over these key points, uh, it's going to cut off the trade to the south. And so this becomes a huge drain on resources because you're chasing these guys all around the mountains and it's just, you know, it, it's like chasing the Viet Cong through the, the jungles of Vietnam, for example. It's a huge, huge drain on resources. Okay, so in the year 1130, Ibn Tumert leads the first assault on Marrakesh itself. Uh, he, he defeats an Almoravid force in the mountains, and then he lays a siege to the city of Marrakesh, which has big walls around it. And, I mean, they they just don't have the kind of weapons where they can blast through and, and go in there. The siege lasts for 40 days, but eventually is not going to be successful because the Almoravids, although they're stretched thin, they have a big empire and they have a big army, and so when they're... Um, capital is under siege, they're going to call for reinforcements from other parts of the empire. They show up. Uh, we have the Battle of Buhaira, which is a big leader, a big uh, battle. Uh, it goes terribly for the Al-Wahids. They get crushed. And in fact, um, about half their top leaders are killed. Uh, huge losses. Ibn Tumrit uh, survives, but a lot of people don't. 
Nonetheless, even after this disaster, he manages to rally the troops uh, and hold the movement together. Now, there is a story where we're not altogether certain about this story about if it's true or how much of it is true. It sounds a little bit fanciful. Uh, in fact, if you hear it, it sounds similar to a story from the Arabian Nights. But anyway, uh, it said that uh, he realized how bad the morale was after the defeat. A lot of people wanted to give up. And so Ibn Tumert, uh, what he did is he sent some of his troops out and had them buried in the ground on the battlefield, where there were, I mean, already a lot of dead people were buried. They had a lot of casualties, and they just buried them in the ground. He has some of his troops buried uh, alive in the ground and using uh, tubes, like, like reeds, sticking out from the ground from which to breathe. And so then he tells the rest of his people, he says, if you doubt the righteousness of our cause, go to the battlefield at night, and ask the dead what we should do. And of course they do that, and when they do, the guys with the tubes under the ground respond, making it sound like voices from the dead, saying, oh no, you know, God wants us to do this, you better go fight, and they are convinced. And of course it's dark, they can't really see, and so they can't tell that they've been scammed. And then it's said that Ibn Tumert, to keep the truth secret, um took away the tubes and had these guys permanently buried in the dirt. Well, you can see why this story would make him look kind of bad. I mean, one, it not only shows that he killed his loyal followers, but it shows that his message is basically fake. This guy who has so many you know, miracles and so much spiritualism attributed to him that he's basically a, a scam artist. So this, this story is going to be circulated by the enemies of the El Mawahids, how much of it is true, uh, we don't know. Um, but what it does show, I think what we can say is kind of true, is that the the El Mawahids were in bad straits. The morale was low. Um, they were about to give up, and he was able to rally them to the cause. Now, whether he did it with a scam or not, it shows what a big deal this was. Now, ironically, Ibn Tumert does survive this battle, but he dies right afterwards. So you would think that this would be like the final nail in the coffin. I mean, they've just lost a big battle. They've lost a lot of troops. They've lost a lot of their leadership, uh, and now they've lost the boss. And so even if this guy did get the ground to speak, uh, now he's dead. So you would, you would think if you were there, you would be, you know, uh, fairly prone to giving up on this. However, this is not what happens. They not only stay together, they get stronger, and eventually they're going to win. Now, why this happens uh, is actually very important. It's not by accident. Um, Ibn Tumert, whatever else you want to say about him, he w organized his society very, very, very um, well, okay, he had a system of organization that, I mean, is just, um, you know, hard to replicate, so at the top, I mean, of course, it's him, but then he had what he called Ahl al-Jama'ah, which is, you know, the people of the gathering, the people of the group, this was a group of his 10 closest advisors, and we actually know who all of these are, so, I mean, it was, it was a strict official group, 
And, and these were like the inner circle. It's sort of like a cabinet. They all had specific jobs. Then there was a larger group below that of 50. And these were 50 representatives of the tribes and the clans. Okay, so and, and it went on further. Then, the, then the, the individual tribes had their own leadership councils and so forth. So even though they suffered tremendous casualties, it turns out that of the 10, right, this, this cabinet, only five of them survived the battle, and then two of those died uh, shortly thereafter. Now, that would have been a huge loss, except he's got this group of 10. So as long as any of them live, we already know who um, the, the elite are. So that left enough of a core structure that when Ibn Tumert died, he was able to fill – he wasn't able, but his successors were able to fill it in, um, and you know the, the structure uh, went on. Okay, so he is succeeded by Abdul Mu'min – uh, Ibn Ali, who will be known as Abdul Mu'min. Uh, now he was actually like the number the number three guy in the structure, but again, he's the top one who survives, and so it's you know pretty straightforward. Okay, even so, Abdul Mu'min's got some some issues. Number one, he's from a different tribe than Ibn Tumur. So he's worried that the, the close followers of Ibn Tumur's tribe would not accept him because of that. And then also he's got the fact that I mean, they've been beaten badly. They've been decimated. So it is said that he kept the death of Ibn Tumur secret for three years so, until he could consolidate his power. And during this time, he would marry into Ibn Tumur's family to give him a um, connection to the tribe. Now, of course, Ibn Tumur had been kind of a, a secretive guy, right? He used to live in a cave for a while, so it was probably easier to keep his death secret than, you know, somebody who's in the public eye. Nonetheless, the Al-Mawahids are still in a tough position when Abdul Mu'min takes over. I mean, they lost a, a big battle. They were fractured internally. And so he realizes he needs to retreat and build his power base. And so he retreats into the Atlas Mountains and spends years consolidating control of the mountains. Uh, and he's known to be very, very harsh in stomping out his enemies and his challengers. He, he purges any possible um, opposition. Okay, so that's on their side. What about the side of the people they're trying to overthrow? Well, the Almoravids, uh, they've still got a large empire to control. And so, you know, fighting off the Almohads is not the only thing they have to deal with. I mean, for one thing, they have to deal with the, the Spanish Reconquista in, in Spain. And still, however, the Almohad threat had become so large that they really had to make major changes. So a key part of their army would become uh, essentially Spanish troops, Christian troops, under the leadership of one Reverte de la Guardia. And he, he was actually one, at one time the, the Vicomte of Barcelona. And you know how far Barcelona is north up in Spain. So he's, you know, he's from way, way up there. Uh, he had been captured in battle in Spain captured by the Almoravids, was shipped off to North Africa, and he was a prisoner for about 10 years. But with the growing threat of the Almohads, he convinced the Almoravids 
uh, to arm the Spanish prisoners they had. They had a lot of Spanish prisoners they had captured in El Andalus, and these were fighters, these were warriors. And so he convinces them to arm them and to use them as a force. Of course, don't send them back to Spain, where they're going to go back to their original side, but I mean, use them in the... In, in the southern Sahara, they don't have any friends down there. I mean, they might as well fight for your side. And this shows something about the treatment that, that he was being given, that he could make such a suggestion and that he could, you know, knew what was going on in the empire and that they would take him seriously. And they do. So he becomes the leader of this core of basically Spanish warriors who are fighting in southern Morocco. Uh, and he's actually very successful. Uh, he fights the al for over a 10-year period uh, and, and is successful at keeping them pinned up in the mountains and defending Marrakesh and the areas around that. Uh, eventually, he will be killed in the year 1144 uh, in, as a testament to how effective he must have been at fighting the al they really hated him because even though he was killed in battle, they had his body crucified out of the city, uh, uh, outside the city of Tlemcen in what is today Algeria. So they really did not like this guy. But anyway, it was a big loss to the El Moravids. The military never really recovered. Uh, they needed those Spanish troops. And this was about the same time as Abdul Mutmin was consolidating his leadership. And so he defeated the disorganized El Moravid forces in battle and after that starts slowly spreading in all directions to the east, to the north, and to the west towards the Atlantic coast. Uh, and it's only a matter of time before he conquers Marrakesh in the year 1147. Uh, this is the year that is generally cited as the end of the El Maravid Empire and the beginning of the El Mwahid Empire, although it doesn't end that um, simply the, the fighting goes on for years. Now, having taken the city of Marrakesh is a good thing, but it's a little bit of a uh, tricky point for Abdul Mu'min uh, because, I mean, they have been lambasting this place for years as being a decadent and un-Islamic place, but it's also the capital, right? It's the, it's the key point of the empire. Uh, so what do you do? So Abdul Mu'min, he does move his operation into Marrakesh, uh, but he carries out a huge purge of the former Almoravids. He destroys their mosques. He destroys their other buildings. Uh, he then makes some very strict laws. So he does keep the capital, but he really, really purges it heavily. Well, from this point, the once great El Maravid Empire would begin to fall apart pretty quickly. Uh, Abdul Mu'min would push the borders all the way to the east. Uh, he would actually make it to the borders of Egypt. He would take over all the El Maravid domains in Spain. And so the El Mawahid um, Empire is going to end up being larger than the Almoravids is going to encompass everything that that empire did plus more. And so with the end in 1147, that makes about 140 years of Almoravid rule. Uh, however, isolated contingents would continue to fight against the Almoravids for the next eight years 
but some would escape and continue to hold on until even after the El Mawahids themselves had collapsed. So there would still be uh, El Maravids out there that would outlast both both empires. And we have to remember, of course, that they, uh, they were originally Berber warriors in origin. They were returning to the desert from which they had uh, come. So, I mean, they're going to be pretty good at hiding out there and, and avoiding uh, the forces of the empire. That doesn't quite fit in with the historical theory of Ibn Khaldun, but uh, that's what happened. But, as I said in the beginning, it is common to consider these two dynasties as phases in one continuous empire, or at least deal with them as being very closely related. In this way, it wasn't like the El Mawahids were creating a new empire out of many small states, the way their predecessors did, but essentially taking over the leadership of an existing empire and they would continue to drive it on the trajectory that they had started, that Ibn Tumid had started, and the El Mawahid uh, dynasty would be the next great phase in the Berber Moroccan history. And that, of course, will be our subject in the next episodes to come. So we thank you very much for joining us for this episode uh, to see the downfall of the once great El Mawahid empire and join us again in the future to see what happens. Please keep those nice comments, those nice reviews coming. That's what keeps us online. Uh, check us out on Facebook, and we look forward to seeing you again next time. Shukran jazilan wa ma'al salama.